So every year, the New York Times releases a segment called uh, The Year in Pictures. And every year, they use vibrant photos to show pictures that characterize all the things that happened in the past 12 months. If you look it up, you'll see moments like when we celebrated uh, the Winter Olympics or uh, moments when we were sickened while uh, former Olympic gymnasts gave their testimony about how their former doctor had abused them. You'd see pictures of celebrity weddings, pictures of celebrity funerals. Pictures of children playing in playgrounds and then pictures of children walking out with their hands each on each other's shoulder after a mass shooting in their high school. When I looked through these pictures, I just kept thinking to myself, that happened this year? Feels like so long ago. Some of these things that I had thought of, like, what happened last year? I was like, that didn't happen last year. That must have been a year or so ago, but it wasn't. And I think the reason why this stuff feels so long ago is that we are aware of everything that happens as soon as it happens. So news gets old really fast. So fast that I wonder if many of us have actually taken the time to process what's happened this year. And I'm just giving a few examples, just the, the larger global and national examples, but think about our own personal lives. So many in our church have celebrated this year. So many in our church have grieved this year. We've had new additions to families, and we've had loss of beloved family members. Some people have celebrated having new jobs. Others have grieved losing the jobs that they were relying on. Some people are celebrating new homes, and some are still searching for a place to live. Relationships have experienced reconciliation, and other relationships have been broken. And again, these are just the big chunks of our lives, all the little minute details that happen in a year. As we enter this new year as a church, we want to step into the rhythm of our culture and, and reflect back, but not just for the sake of saying something like, oh, you know, that was a really rough year, or, or 2018 was a great year. We, we have a larger worldview than that. We believe in a personal, loving, and sovereign God who is active in every detail of every minute, of every day, of every year. And we haven't truly processed a year until we've processed it with him, until we've recognized his faithfulness through it all. And there's no better way to begin a new year than to remember God as we remember the former year and rely on him as we go forward in 2019 with our resolutions and our desires. So we're going to do a shorter sermon today, like Clint said. We're looking at a prayer in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to put it to practice afterwards. So this will be a short sermon, and then we're all going to pray together. The book of Nehemiah outlines the faithfulness of God and how that's experienced to its fullest when we rely on him, particularly through prayer. So there are nine prayers in this 13-chapter book. and Some are long, song-like praises of God, and some are as short as now strengthen my hands. That's it. And the prayer we're going to look at today falls in the medium category. It's the prayer that Nehemiah starts his memoir out with, this, this prayer, this reaction to the news he received. Before we get into that, I just want to give some background on Nehemiah. We haven't done this book uh, before. It's a historical book of the Old Testament, which basically just means its purpose is to tell a historical story. Nehemiah is telling about the events that happened in his life. They take place in about the 3rd century B.C. during a time when Israel was in captivity to the Persian Empire. 
To make a long story short, back in Deuteronomy 28, after the Israelites had escaped slavery, God told them that uh, before they even got into their land, that if they obeyed him, he would bless them. But if they didn't, he would, they would be taken captive and dispersed through the nations. And so as you can tell, the nation did the latter. King David's son, Solomon, chased after a lot of other gods and married a lot of women who did the same. And the result of his divided heart was a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom took on the name Judah. And that's where Jerusalem was. So both kingdoms were idolatrous and they were taken into captivity. Judah was taken by the Babylonian Empire. And then the Persians defeated them and they acquired Judah and all their land in the spoils. And so this is where Nehemiah is. He's one of the captives who works for the king of Persia as his cupbearer. Now, a cupbearer wasn't just like being a waiter. He actually, he would bring the cup to the king, but he would be the one to drink from it first to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So every day for Nehemiah was a gamble. So it's in this setting that, that he starts his memoir by telling us about some news he receives from his brother. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah is faced with this terrible news in this terrible setting. And even though Judah was captive, uh, there was a remnant in Israel who were actually living there and and were doing okay by comparison. And uh, their local enemies didn't like that. And so every time they would try to rebuild the walls or start up civilization again, they would tear them down or petition the king of Persia to halt all construction. So Nehemiah's people are in great trouble and great shame. In the, in the ancient Near East, if you didn't have walls in your city, you didn't have a city. Your city was not protected without walls and without somebody to guard those walls. And their walls have been broken down. They've been burned. The gates have been burned. And so what does Nehemiah do with this news? We're going to look quickly at his reaction and the prayer that follows. We're going to look at his process. We're going to look at his posture, his promises that he relies on, and his petition to God. So think process, posture, promise, and petition. So let's look at how Nehemiah processes this news. We talked about processing a year, right? How does he process the destruction of his land and the shame of his people? Look with me at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So how does he process this news? God's word says that as soon as he heard the words, he sat down. It says he wept and he mourned for days. He continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Have you ever heard news that made you sit down? He can't stand after hearing this. It says he wept and he mourned for days. It says he continued to fast and pray before the God of heaven. Nehemiah processes this news by grieving with God. Did you know that you can grieve with God? 
You know, a lot of the things that grieve us grieve him. Loss of life in any form grieves God just like it grieves us. Relational strife, backstabbing, betrayal, cutthroat competition, that grieves God the same way it grieves you. Abuse, be it domestic or international, grieves God like it grieves us. Destruction of his creation like like the wildfires in Florida this past year, that grieves God too. He didn't create his world this way. In Genesis 2, it says, God finished his creation, including humanity, and he looked upon it and he said, it was very good. And everything not very good falls short of the joy that creation was created for. When the world looks not very good, wouldn't it be safe to say that God outgrieves us? This is his creation. So Nehemiah grieves with God because Israel was the land that he set apart for uh, the people that he set apart, for his purposes. His intention was blessing, not destruction. And Nehemiah knows that. The God of heaven grieves with you. And not just that, he listens to you. And he has the power to act. So look with me at verse five. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah requests that the Lord hear his prayer. But look at his posture before God. We've talked about how he's processing his grief, but let's look at the posture here uh, as he asks for God's ear. He calls him Lord, God of heaven the covenant keeper. And what does he call himself? He calls himself God's servant. Nehemiah approaches God with a posture of humble allegiance. You are God. I am your servant. Your will is my will. Your command is my desire. Praying day and night like this. He approaches God with humility, which is really just seeing God for who he is and seeing himself for who he is. God is the loving covenant keeper, the Lord of all who has his mind and interests on the, on the interests of his people. He's above all, yet he's accessible. And his posture, Nehemiah's posture, isn't just that of, a hum, of humble allegiance, but humble confession too. Look with me at the second part of verse six. He says, I'm your servant. The people of Israel are your servants. He says he prays day and night, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah approaches God, not saying, how could you let this happen? Not saying, fix this. Not saying, I'm the answer to the problem, bless me. He acknowledges the sin of Israel that got them into the mess. But not just that, and this is what's amazing about Nehemiah. He identifies himself with his people. And he says, even I have sinned. We've all sinned, and I'm confessing on behalf of my family, on behalf of my nation, and on behalf of myself. I've been part of this. I'm with them. This is why Nehemiah is regarded as such a great leader. He identifies with his people and he takes the rap with them. 
Now, our nation isn't today's Israel, right? We're not God's people as the United States of America set apart for him. But still, how often are we willing to identify with the sins and the problems of our people? We look around at things and they look dismal. Maybe we complain a lot. We wish things would get better. We see lots of wrong. But is there any chance, any chance at all that, that we've played some part in the madness of it all? What if we even positioned ourselves before God with this posture of humility and asked him, God of heaven, where have I contributed to this? But it's not just about what Nehemiah has contributed to this mess. He's also, uh, he loves his people. It's about his love for his people and his desire to see them thrive. He cares about their well-being, even though they're reaping what they've sowed. He invokes God's promises on their behalf. The same God who promised to scatter the unfaithful also promised to gather the faithful. Look with me at verse 8 as Nehemiah calls on God's promises. He says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So God's promises are real and they're kept. And Nehemiah is praying according to the promises of God. Do you know how to get a 100% return rate on your prayer? Pray according to the promises of God. God has so many gracious promises for his people and for this world They might not be answered today, but every promise will be kept. In Isaiah 55, 10, God says about his word, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, does God answer prayers that don't cite his promises? Yes, because he's a loving and gracious father uh, to his children, and he enjoys giving good gifts, like any parent on Christmas, right? Matthew 7, 11 says that if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does our Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? But he hasn't promised the car that you want. He hasn't promised the financial stability that you're longing for. He hasn't promised a pain-free life here and now. And he hasn't promised a cure for all of your ailments in this life. But he's gracious and he does act. So we should ask him. But let's be careful as we pray that we don't think that God's word is coming up empty when we don't get what we want, when we want it, or how we want it. But let's ask him anyway. And ask him knowing that he grieves the not very good with you. And in his wisdom, he's chosen a time to set it all right through Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah asks God to return the people to their land as they return to him according to his promises. But as he ends his prayer, he gets more specific with a petition. Look look at uh, verse 11. He doesn't just want to do this in a vacuum. He, He himself wants to be used by God. He wants to harness his position within the Persian government to accomplish this. 
He says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. (coughs) And the verse ends, now I was cupbearer to the king. So Nehemiah is asking for the king's mercy because he's about to ask him to leave and lead the charge on rebuilding the walls of his home. He's asking to leave his current job to be able to do that and to begin the restoration of this city which houses the temple of God, the very place where God was supposed to live among his people. And he's not just going to ask to leave, he's actually going to ask the king to send people and money and materials with him. And you know what? He does. God answers this prayer. And if you go on to read Nehemiah, you'll see that this prayer is the foundation for the repentance of the people of Jerusalem, for the restoration of the walls and gates that have been destroyed. This prayer is a foundation for the eight other prayers throughout this book as Nehemiah meets resistance trying to carry out this restoration plan. So what would it look like if we processed with God? If we took a posture of humility before him, if we prayed his promises, if we petitioned him with earnest desires to accomplish his will, what would it look like if Seven Mile Road did that together? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. Jesus is the confirmation that God keeps his promises and that he hears the prayers of his people. You know, throughout the Old Testament, there are promises of the coming Messiah, the servant king who would lead the greatest restoration project in history, the restoration of God's entire creation. Where Nehemiah served as a a king who asked him to drink poison on his behalf, Jesus is the king who took the cup of poison for us. Jesus is both cup bearer and king. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop on the cross, like Nehemiah, identifying with the sinful people. Only he didn't take part in any of the sin. He didn't just bear the wrap with us. He took it for us. He was sinless. And he was raised on the third day, just as he promised he would be. And he'll return just as God's word says, and he'll restore all things, Acts 3.21. That's when sickness will be healed. That's when tears will be dried. That's when death will be no more for those who believe in him. So if you have yet to believe in him today, I just invite you to do that. You know, in the same passage in Acts 3, where it says he'll restore all things, the apostle Peter says, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord.